Well, good morning, Peachtree. And by morning, I mean morning because it's a little early today. Hopefully you figured out the technology of the difference of whether or not your clock or your watch actually sets itself or your phone does it versus uh, whether you're supposed to change it. Uh, we're so glad that you're with us today that you were able to navigate the time-space continuum to be with us um, today. And I hope uh, if you've been in the Atlanta area, like what a glorious uh, week and weekend uh, spring has seemed to arrive. Now, I know the minute I say that, there'll be some like snowstorm next month, but hopefully spring is fully here, and we hope that this broadcast and this message finds you well and that you are experiencing the joy of what it means to live this life of faith. And so today I want to begin with a story of something that happened about 10 years ago. Uh, Kelly and I were invited to participate in an every three-year conference that is on the life and the legacy of C.S. Lewis. And while we're over there, we're touring, and we get to tour this magnificent place. I want to show it to you. It's called Ely Cathedral. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And not only on the outside is it large, on the inside it is magnificent. Look at the stunning architecture of this building. And even just the ceiling itself is worth kind of just looking up and admiring and checking out. And the paintings and the detail are absolutely exquisite. Well, we weren't just there to see this architecture. We were there to go to a worship service to hear a preacher. We went to hear this man. His name is John Polkingorn. And in seminary, he was one of the people that Kelly and I had read over and over again, and he was one of our kind of uh, theological heroes. I think for my wife, he was kind of a theological crush, truth be told. And uh, so we were really excited to hear him preach. Part of what makes John so special um, is that for the first part of his life, he got his master's in mathematics, then he got his doctorate in, um, in physics, and then after a while, he felt like he had made his contribution to the field of math and science and decided to become an Anglican priest. And so he studied to become a priest at midlife and began a theological exploration as well. And he has an absolutely magnificent perspective on the gospel. And so you can imagine we're sitting in this incredible cathedral and we're so excited to hear him preach. And the topic of his sermon was on science and hope. And he began his sermon talking about what we know from science, about what, uh, what we think is going to happen eventually with the universe. He talked about the expansion of the universe, expanding into what? We're not really sure, but it's expanding and it's cooling. And as a result, he goes, the best of our scientific consensus is that this is going to lead to cosmic death and that the universe as we know it will not exist. And I lean into my wife and I whisper to her and I say, um, you know what? This is kind of a bummer of a sermon. He's telling us that the universe is going to die. She's hitting me in the arm and she's saying, you know what? Um, he's not done yet. Be quiet. And so I listen a little more to the message and he's talking about uh, a philosopher by the name of Weinberg who says, you know, the more that we find out about the universe, the more pointless that it seems. And I lean back into my wife and I tell her, I said, you know, this is very different from a Joel Osteen sermon about our best life now. This is even becoming more of a bummer. Now she's hitting me on the arm and she's telling me to shut up in church. 
And so eventually he goes a little bit further into this message. And in doing so, he talks about how science can only take us so far, that silence is really good and useful knowledge, and that science's lustful friend technology can only take us so far, that technology has an incredible gift to be able to improve our life. But we know that what ails us, all the problems that we have, that mere improvement is not going to get us to where we want to go. In other words, in order for us to have any hope at all, it's going to take faith in Jesus Christ. That only Jesus Christ can truly give us a living hope. That was a sermon that was worth traveling a long way away to hear. We're in the midst of a series on the Gospel of John, and we're talking about how we are changed with the life-giving belief that is promised in the Gospel of John. And so we experience that transformation through what we are no longer. We are no longer cynical. We are no longer empty. We are no longer religious, ashamed, paralyzed, hungry, condemned, blind, no longer lost, and today no longer hopeless. I want you to know that in today's passage, In John chapter 11, we're about to see the embodiment of hope itself. This is the famous story of the raising of Lazarus. And it's one of my absolute favorites in all of the Bible. Let's read it together. On Jesus' arrival, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Can you hear the anguish, the anxiety? the astonishment that is in Martha's voice. Lord, if you'd have been here. As a pastor, I have heard this repeated over and over again, just a slight variation on the theme. Lord, if you'd have been along that highway. Lord, if you'd been in that hospital room. Lord, if you'd have been at that location in which the tragedy occurred. Lord, if you'd have been in that body, then this would have never have happened. How many if onlys do you feel like that you've accumulated in your life? We need to not soften and to cushion the blow of what Martha's feeling in this moment. She believes that Jesus is too late and that he is too far behind. She is devastated. She is disappointed. She is destroyed. And that is what Martha brings to this moment when she runs to Jesus at the news of the death of her brother and dear friend, Lazarus. If you'd have been here, if you'd have been here, if you'd have been here. With all that they had seen, with all that they know about Jesus, And yet Jesus was absent in those moments. 
A friend of mine says that Jesus never seems to be in a hurry. And he also says that Jesus refuses to conform to your expectations and to your timetables. And so we wait and we grieve. Martha, in the midst of her grief, has given up on a lot of things. But she has not given up on one thing. Even with her accusations and her questions, she has not given up hope. And we're about to see that now. Let's continue in the story. Martha says, but I know that even now God will give whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know we will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, some of the most shocking words in history. I am the resurrection of the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. You can almost picture Jesus leaning in and then asking this question, do you believe this? Martha is about to experience a profound lesson. The lesson is the difference between hoping for something and hoping in someone. There's a difference between what we hope for and what we hope in. You know, my birthday's coming up this week, and I might hope for some particular presence or celebration, but I do not put my hope in those things. In fact, a great deal of disappointment and devastation and harm happens when we put our hope in things that really we are only supposed to hope for. It's okay to hope for things. Christianity doesn't teach us that desires are bad and that we're not supposed to long for things, especially good things. Good things like giving your pastor a present. But we don't put our hope in those things. Because when you put your hope in things that cannot bear it, you'll always be disappointed. And so we have to make sure that we put our hope in the right things. It's a guy by the name of Edward who did not grow up in a Christian home. Edward, uh, his parents owned a bar and they wanted nothing to do with the life of faith or church. And when he was younger, Edward, at the age of 15, showed a real proclivity of working with his hands. And his parents uh, kind of sent him to work in kind of an apprenticeship with uh, a cabinet maker. Showed some real promise at this age. And with his newfound freedom and his apprenticeship, a friend dragged him one time to go hear a preacher that forever changed his life. The message that he heard was a captivating one of the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he had never heard before. And that completely reoriented, completely changed his life. But it didn't change his career. He continued to work with his hands, continued to build like a, an incredible cabinetry company just outside of London. It was 40 years later. He was turning 55 years old. And just like John Polkinghorne had felt like that all that he had done in contribution to mathematics and science, this figure felt like, you know what? I think I've contributed everything I can with my hands. And he dedicated his life to a life of ministry 
and he left his work, which was very profitable, and he became a pastor. And in doing so, knowing the value of what it was like to sing songs while you work, he began to compose hymns. And he composed over a hundred hymns, one of which says this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. My hope is built on nothing less. He then is all my hope and stay. Through the life of faith, Edward Mote learned what it was like to put his hope in Jesus. I shared with you a few minutes ago that the most shocking thing about this is that Jesus would have the audacity to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Not that resurrection might not happen one day, but that he is, he is the embodiment of that right here, right now, for Martha, for this family, for you. And he asks that haunting question of whether or not we believe it. And maybe you've never been asked that question before, faced that question before, been confronted with that question before. Maybe you've heard sermon after sermon after sermon. Maybe you've been a good churchgoer. Maybe you've never set foot in a church. Maybe you're watching this for the first time. Do you believe it? Jesus asks. Not do you believe that it's possible. Not do you believe that something historically happened a long time ago. I mean, do you put your hope in him? We don't just hope for life after death and for new creation and new life. We put our hope in it in the hands of Jesus. Martha said she believed it. And then Jesus is about to encounter Mary. This is how it goes. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but it was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd have been here, do you notice the echo of this question? my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Martha needed to get some things straight in her head. She needed to know if it was possible, was God strong enough, powerful enough to do what she had hoped for. 
and could she put her hope in him? Mary has the same question, the same haunting feeling of disappointment, but hers comes from a different place of grief, of sadness. She knows Jesus as can. What she doesn't know is whether he cares. And so in the shortest verse of the Bible, we find the eternity of maybe the most important, that Jesus wept. I love this painting of Jesus holding Mary and her weeping. Notice the tears running down his face. And I just want to pause for you to look at this for a moment and to meditate upon Jesus holding you and your point of tenderness and of grief and embracing you with his tears. I don't know what wounds, disappointments, devastations you have felt. Here's what I do know. I know that Jesus weeps with you. When I was in high school, I remember one day being interrupted in my class and being pulled out of the classroom. I went to a small Presbyterian church. There were probably only about 20 or 30 of us total that ever participated in the high school ministries. And a member of the administration had come to tell me, as well as a couple of other students from my small school that were a part of our church, that the night before, a member of our youth group had been killed tragically in an auto accident. My first feeling was of shock and of disbelief. I mean, it was just that last Sunday that he was so full of life and energy and humor and joy and my teenage brain couldn't fathom that, wait, he's gone? I went outside in the midst of my shock and my shock started to turn into sadness. What I remember was a girl who was not from our youth group, who didn't know this person at all, who sat on a picnic bench with me and with one other person. And she just sat close to us. She didn't say a word. But her eyes welled up with tears and she just cried with us. To this day, it was one of the most unsolicited acts of compassion that I can recall. That she entered into our grief. That she was willing to weep with those who weep. She didn't say anything profound. In fact, if anything, she avoided the pitfalls of all the platitudes of what we tend to do in a moment like this. She was just with us. We're at the one-year mark of COVID and over half a million people have died. I can't imagine that you don't know someone like I do who hasn't died as a result of what we've been through in the last year. Jesus weeps and mourns with our world right now. 
The Apostle Paul says, we grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And that hope is about to get turned on its head. John chapter 11. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. That phrase, deeply moved, is so much bigger than just that. It's like anger mixed with passion. Jesus, once more, with anger and and with passion, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Remove it. Take it away. Jesus is going to take away the barriers between heaven and earth, just as the barrier will get ripped open in the temple from top to bottom, just as anything that could possibly separate us from life and from love and from the life that way things are supposed to be, when every tear will be wiped away from our eye. Yes, there is no more separation, no more crying, no more pain. Take away the stone, Jesus insists. He will move those stones. And then he does this. When Jesus had said this, he called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth was around his face. Can you imagine this scene? Four days, four days in the tomb. The reason that four days is significant is that they believed at that point in time in Judaism and in many other traditions that the soul could linger around, that the spirit could linger around the body for three days. Four days was to show that this was no mere resuscitation. This was not that he fell into a deep sleep and they didn't realize that he was asleep. No, Lazarus was dead beyond dead. He wasn't just a little dead. He was all the way gone. And then now he walks out of the tomb. Jesus' voice will ring out through all of creation to, to create the new creation of come out of there, come out of there, come out of there. I love how Craig Barnes puts it in a sermon on Lazarus. He puts it like this. He says, you can't avoid the tomb, but you were never meant to live there. Jesus doesn't come into your tomb to comfort you. He doesn't like the tombs. He doesn't stay in his tomb for very long either. So stop decorating your tomb. Stop trying to make it more comfortable. Stop managing your tomb, trying to make it more hospitable. Instead, listen for the voice of Jesus standing at the door. He's calling you to come out. We engage so much in this life in kind of tomb management, tomb decoration, that we're we're comfortable with just kind of managing the devastation and the disappointment that we feel in this life. But oh no, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that because Jesus is calling us to come out. And when we come out of our tombs, he says in the old kind of more wooden literal language of this passage, he says, unbind him and let him go. He will set us free from death itself. My favorite movie is from 1994, and it is Shawshank Redemption. It's a story of a man by the name of Andy Dufresne who was wrongly convicted for the murder of his wife. And he finds himself in this prison. It's a horrible place filled with all kinds of criminals and it's completely depraved. 
in the midst of this place, Andy strikes up a new friendship. A friendship with a guy by the name of Red, played by Morgan Freeman on the right. It's a remarkable series of dialogue and banter between the two of them in the midst of this friendship. And Andy is unlike any other prisoner that's been a part of Shawshank before. Not only because of his skills, but also because of his service, his willingness to help everybody who's there. He helps somebody to get a GED. He helps, you know, kind of the warden with accounting and with the books. He helps all kinds of different people, people with legal challenges. He becomes kind of the resident expert in helping and serving one another. And because of that, he earns the warden's trust. One day, he is up in kind of one of the towers where the PA system is, and he discovers he discovers a series of donations from the library that he's helped to cultivate a record of a Mozart duet. He brushes off the record and puts it on the record player, and he puts it on the record player and then puts it on a PA system that announces to all of everyone who was in the prison yard and everybody stops and stares as they listen to the music of that Gloria opera and aria just hanging through the walls. And Morgan Freeman's character, Red, puts it like this. I have no idea to this day what them two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache just because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anyone in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls to dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank was free. Oh, this stunt, it made the warden really angry. In fact, the guards break into the office where Andy is kind of hold himself in and the record players stop, the PA system is turned off, and even as the scene fades to darkness, you can hear the haunting voices of those two singing, the voices of another world. And before the camera has a chance completely to fade out, you can just read some graffiti that is on the wall. And it says on the steel door, God, this is a terrible place. It's a lament. Andy got two weeks in solitary confinement for that little stunt. And after he served his time, he's reunited with his friends in the mess hall. And this is what happens next. One prisoner asks, you couldn't have played something good, huh? Maybe some Hank Williams? Andy said, they broke down the door before I could take any requests. Another prisoner pipes in, was it worth two weeks in the hole? Easiest time I ever did. No such thing as easy time in the hole. A week feels like a year. Andy says, I had Mr. Mozart to keep me company. Hardly felt the time at all. Oh, they let you tote that record player down there, huh? I could have swore they would have confiscated all of that stuff. Andy, in the midst of this, taps his heart in his head, and he says, the music was in here. It was in here. That's the one thing they can't ever confiscate. Not ever. That's the beauty of it. Haven't you ever felt that way about music or anything red? Red jokes and deflects and 
says, play the mean harmonica once when I was a younger man, lost my taste for it. Didn't make much sense on the inside. Andy said, here's where it makes the most sense. We need it so we don't forget. Forget? That there are things in this world not carved out of gray stone. That there's a small place inside of us that they can never lock away. And that place is called hope. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. My friends, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the little foretaste that he gives us, it's like we live in a dark, drab world that feels like a prison. And the new song of the new creation of who he is is pouring over the loudspeakers, inviting us, beckoning us to not give up. You and I are not just on a train leading towards cosmic death and an ever-expanding, ever-cooling universe. We are not subject to just the whims of science and technology. Improvement alone will not save us. There's a lot that we hope for. There's only one that you can put your hope in. And he himself is the resurrection and the life.